Welcome, everybody. You are listening to Two Massage Therapists on a Microphone. My name is Amanda, registered massage therapist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And today I'm hanging out in our space uh, with a guest who's here to talk about something uh, something we haven't talked about before. The initial intent of this podcast was education, and I thought our guest today could actually do exactly that, is uh, shed some light on something that I don't think people know a lot about. Uh, her name is Karen Lynn. And she is on the board of uh, Kawasaki Disease Canada, uh, which is a foundation for Kawasaki disease. And if you are just hearing this term for the first time ever, um, that's totally normal. I actually had no idea what Kawasaki disease was a few years ago. And then, um, unfortunately, I had to know what it was, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, Karen is the head of the support committee, and uh, she has a son, Isaiah, who is now 10 years old. And uh, Isaiah actually lives with Kawasaki disease. And um, Karen, from what I've seen from her social media posts and any interactions we've had, is very passionate about getting information out to people, spreading some awareness about this disease, and um, yeah, just like I said, educating people and shedding some light on this. So Karen, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start at the beginning? Because as before we put the headsets on, you said, just like me, before you had to know what it was, you had no idea what Kawasaki disease was. Exactly. All right. So take us back right from the beginning. Okay. When, back in 2011, um, Isaiah had just started uh, daycare for the first time. He was two, almost three. And um, he got a fever and I figured, oh, it's just, you know, something he picked up at daycare. Yeah, regular daycare. Yeah, sickness. he's never yeah. been there before. So clearly, you know, he's not used to all the viruses and um, stuff he can pick up there. So he had a fever. I gave him Tylenol as normal, like I had done with my older child and didn't really think much of it. Um, he then got diarrhea. But again, par for the course when it comes to kids and illnesses. Right. Um, it wasn't until um, the Saturday... He still had a fever, even though we'd been giving Tylenol, um, you know, according to what the label said, he still, the fever kept coming back. Um, and then Saturday morning, we noticed that he didn't want to turn his head. He would turn his whole body to look at you, but he wouldn't actually move his neck. And then we noticed he was developing um, these red spots and uh, swollen um, areas in both sides of his neck. So, of course... You immediately think meningitis because the people always tell you stiff neck, fever, right. meningitis, which is actually pretty rare, but for some reason it's something we'd always been told growing up. And so I decided to take him to the pediatric walking clinic, um, pediatric specifically, because I figured it's better when they're dealing with children, they're going to be more knowledgeable. Right. Um, so I took him there and the doctor looked him over. I told him, you know, he had fever since Wednesday, it was now Saturday. He figured it's, he said it's just the flu. And when he saw the red spots, he thought, oh, this is something I haven't seen before, which was a bit unsettling when your doctor says that to you, a pediatrician, right? But he said, oh, you know, I think it's just the flu. And because his muscles are sore, that's why he doesn't want to move his neck. And it's probably irritating um, his lymph nodes. And that's why they look swollen. Right. Um, so, you know, obviously... We figured, okay, we'll trust him. And then um, that night, he started to develop a rash um, on his back and on his groin area, his diaper area. Uh, so I was freaking out because I thought, oh, what is this now? And then he didn't really want to walk and he was walking, he was losing his balance. And that's when I kind of lost it. And I was crying and I said to my husband, I think something is really wrong. And he's like, well, if you want, let's take him to the ER, right? Let's take him to sick kids and have him looked at. And then I was thinking, I said, you know, if we go over there, it's the peak season. I mean, flu season's starting. We're going to sit in there for like hours. And they're just going to tell us it's a virus. Just go home. Right. So I said, forget it. I'm not going to expose him more things. We'll just wait. And I took him back to a different pediatric walking clinic the next day. And then again, you know, he still had the fever. He had diarrhea. Um, the rash had gone, but I told the pediatrician, you know, this is what he had. He still had a bit of lymph node swollen, but not that much. So she looked at him and she... She looked at his tongue and said, oh, he looks maybe a little dehydrated. And she took a swab for strep and said, you know, the rash could just be his body's way of dealing with the virus. Like it's an allergy to you the virus. I, I was going to say something before when you mentioned the rash about this, and I didn't. But right. now that it's coming up again, right. 
each and every time I've taken my kids in for some type of rash, the response I always get is, oh, it's just their way of dealing with the virus. I don't think rashes are looked at as anything serious anymore. It's like, oh, it's just a virus and that's their body's reaction to it. Right, which I I thought was odd because growing up, I don't remember it being like that, but maybe it's different now. So it was very glazed over. Like mm-hmm. she didn't, she thought, you know, um, you know, she did take the swab and then said, uh, you know, go back to your, your regular doctor during the week if it continues. And I asked her about the fever. I said, you know, this is Sunday now. And she said, oh, you know, fevers can last for up to seven days in mm-hmm. kids, even just with regular viruses. Uh, so then the rash kind of came and went. So we went to our doctor on, I think it was Tuesday, and he gave him Benadryl. He said, oh, try the Benadryl. Maybe that will help. But he wasn't itching, but it was more just presenting itself. But he had some itchiness in his nose and he was always scratching his eyes, but not the rash itself. So that didn't work at all. And he still wasn't eating. He was falling asleep in his high chair. He he was living on basically Pedialyte and Tylenol at this mm-hmm. point. So, and then he just, he couldn't even walk. So I said, forget it. I'm bringing him back. So Wednesday I took him back and um, he's like, well... My, the pediatrician said, you know, I'm leaving it up to you. You you know him best. You know your child. If this is not your child, then you know something's wrong. And I said, yeah, this is not my child. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, well, let me see if the allergist can take you first because he just still didn't know why the rash wasn't going away, but they couldn't take him. And then he said, you know what? Just go to the hospital. Go to the ER because he didn't actually diagnose it, but he knew something was wrong and he trusted that I knew as a parent mm-hmm. that something was wrong. So we took him to the kids' ER, and um, when we went in there, you know, we waited for a bit. And when we went in, they examined him, and they're doing their whispering, and I don't know what's going on. And they came in and said um, that they think he has Kawasaki disease. So, of course, um, my husband and I, we had no idea. Like you, we'd never heard of it. No But when clue. you hear the word disease, at first you're like... What what does that mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, is it fatal? But then they, you know, they went on to say, no, it's treatable. We have a treatment for it. And we'll admission, you know, most kids go on and they're fine. Um, and then they left the room. But of course, we started Googling it, right? So then you're looking oh. it up and you're reading, oh my gosh, it can be life-threatening. If this happens, that happens. And then, but they reassured us that, you know, there's nothing to worry about. And, you know, we caught on time and that we can treat it. Um, and then we just became more concerned about the treatment because the treatment is something called IVIG and it's right. a blood product. So they make you sign this waiver, you know, understanding because you're receiving a blood pro- product, here are all the risks. So then we became more worried about that than the disease itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but fast forward, I guess I'll fast forward through treatment and all that. Um, he did receive treatment, uh, but he was what they call resistant. So he had to have another treatment and then he had to have steroids. And there was a lot of back, back and forth. We were in the hospital for quite a while. Um, but when we finally were discharged, we were so relieved and we thought, finally, it's over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is good. They said there's some inflammation. They did an echocardiogram and did say that there was some um, inflammation in his coronary arteries, which is um, the danger with Kawasaki disease. Right. And, but then they said, oh, it's, uh, you know, it should resolve. They didn't seem worried. So I wasn't worried. And this, you know, you just come back in six weeks for a uh, follow point with cardiology. They'll do another echo and then it, that will be it. And then when, um, so we thought it was fine. We, he, you know, he, he lost a lot of weight, but over, you know, a couple of weeks he got it back and his energy came back and, you know, he, we were okay. But when we went back for the six week checkup, um, they did the echo and then, we weren't supposed to go back and talk to the cardiologist for another week because they didn't have an appointment the same day. Then they're like, no, you need to see cardiology now. They're going to page them. So immediately. Immediately. Something was wrong. And we were like, what is going on? And that's when we found out from um, our nurse practitioner, who's still our nurse practitioner today, um, that he had developed what they call coronary aneurysms. So that's a ballooning of the arteries of the heart that supply blood to the heart. Um, and he developed multiple giant aneurysms as a result of the Kawasaki mm-hmm. disease. And we need to start him on blood thinners right away because the danger with aneurysms is if your blood is not, when the blood tries to pass through, it doesn't pass through like a regular um, artery. It starts to pool in the ballooning and then it starts to develop a clot. When blood stays still, it develops a clot. Right. So they needed to start him on blood thinners right away 
Um, a nurse came in and taught us how to inject him. And, it was, and at this point, sorry, he's he's two, right? That's he was not, he had just turned three as soon as three. he left the hospital because he okay. was discharged on Halloween and his birthday is in November the 2nd. So this, he had just turned three and this was in December. So a, so a three-year-old on blood thinners. That's yeah, where we're at. Pretty okay. much. And it's, you know, he's on, he's still on them. He's on three different types of blood thinners. He's on um, blood pressure medication. He's on a statin. I always say he has an old man medicine because he's one of those old <laughs> medicine oh. things the days of the week. So I'm like, he's his old man meds because, you know, a statin, you hear about so much in the news and that's what most older people take yeah. to prevent um, or treat their heart disease. So he takes a lot of medications that you wouldn't expect a young child to be taking. Right. Yeah. Well, like you said, so... <clears throat> I, I want to get into a little bit more about what Kawasaki exactly. disease is before, but before we do that, um, I'll let everyone know how I came to know Karen. Um, it was a very similar, as you're talking the entire time, I was going, yep, yep, check, check. Uh, very similar experience. Our daughter, at the time she would have been, oh my goodness, how long ago was this? Uh, she would have been three. And... Um, it was family day weekend, the year that she was three. So she would have been three and a half, actually. It was family day weekend. And we went to Kittapalooza at Markham Fairgrounds. And that day she was like having the time of her life. She was dancing. I have video of her like dancing to like, I think, I don't know, they had like Disney princesses and stuff there. Anyway, she was having the time of her life. Near the end of the day, um, her and I were sitting, but we were sitting under a big heater. Because again, it was family day. So for anyone in the States that doesn't know, that's a holiday we have in February. So it's freezing. And we were sitting under a big heater in like sort of a giant tent on Markham Fairgrounds. So it was hot already, but she came close to me and I felt like she felt incredibly hot. I was like, this is weird. Why are you so hot? So I kind of moved her away from the the, um, the giant heater. I thought she was so hot because of the dancing and the heater and, you know, didn't think much of it. We were just about to leave to go home because our little one needed to have a nap. And uh, Queen Elsa was there taking photos with the kids. So she wanted to get her photo taken before we left. So, of course, I said, okay, fine. We got in line. We were in line for about 10 minutes. And, like, the fur the closer we got to the front of the line, I felt like she was just acting weird. Like, suddenly she was like, maybe we can just go home. She was, like, leaning on me. And at this point, she had completely dropped her afternoon nap. She wasn't sleeping, but it, she was so tired. She was, like, like holding onto my arm. And, it, like, it was almost like dead weight. Like, she was so tired. And I said, we're almost at the front of the line. Like, we've waited this long. Right. Let's go get the picture. So I have this picture still, and every time I look at it, I just remember, like, the feeling the next day of, like, what just happened? Because she just suddenly was, like, glazed over. Like, she wasn't even, like, I was trying to take a picture, and I said, look at the camera. And she just had this glazed-over look. She wasn't even happy to be there. She just wanted to go home. She was so tired. So anyway, we got in the car, and she fell asleep in the car. I didn't think too much of it because we did just have a really exciting day and she had just dropped her nap. So I'm like, okay, fine. She's tired. Um, the next day, however, she had a fever and I honestly can't remember how many days after that, but it was the same as you. I didn't think too much of it. I think I gave her some Tylenol before bed so she would be comfortable. Um, maybe two or three days after she had a rash all over her torso. And I thought, okay, that's strange. So I brought her to the doctor and the initial diagnosis was roseola. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't so much question. I was like, okay, it could be. I'm like, I feel like she's a little old, but you know, things happen atypically all the time. Okay, fine. It could be roseola. And I said to the doctor though, but isn't roseola typically like the fever and then the fever breaks and then the rash. And I was like, I don't feel like this, but again, maybe it's just atypical. So we left. And a few days later, um, not even a few days, two days later, um, the rash was changing. Like it was still there, but it was changing and the fever was still there. And now she was at the point where she, same as Isaiah, wasn't eating anything like absolutely anything, um, just wanted to sleep all day. Mm-hmm. She was laying in my bed and she would literally sleep all day. Um, she had really red bloodshot eyes. And she, uh, when I brought her back in the second time, it was because her tongue was red 
and bumpy. And I brought her back in. And um, actually, the part of the story I left out, the first time we went, when he diagnosed his roseola and I questioned it, he was listing a bunch of different childhood viruses that it could have been, right. things that are associated with rashes. And one of them he mentioned was um, hand, foot, and mouth disease. Yeah. So the scientific name for hand, foot, and mouth disease, I believe is pronounced like Coxsackie. I don't even yeah. want to get into that name. That's just, I don't even, who decided to name that? <laughs> but when he said that, this, this doctor actually, um, he speaks very fast. And when he said that, I heard Kawasaki. Oh, okay. Which is really bizarre because I didn't even know what Kawasaki was, but that's what I heard right. when he said that. So fast forward, I brought her back in and he was once again going through all of the things that it could be. I took it upon myself like you to Google Kawasaki disease. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, red bloodshot eyes. Yes, the red swollen tongue, the, you know, lethargic, uh, no appetite, like all of these things were there. And so I said to him, you know, you mentioned Kawasaki disease. Are you still thinking that's a possibility? He said, no, I never said Kawasaki disease. Mm. He said, I thought, I said, Coxsackie. Yeah. And, like, and then he explained to me that's hand, foot, and mouth. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. So, but there's no, like, nothing on her hands or her feet. But again, could be atypical. Right. Um, and he looked at her tongue again. He said, no, that's not strawberry tongue, which again, you'll get into as one of the symptoms because it's, he said, if it was strawberry tongue, it would be really, really swollen. That I thought was very bizarre. I was like, okay, so we are willing to accept that it could be, you know, hand, foot, and mouth, even though she's missing symptoms. We're willing to accept that it could be roseola, even though it didn't present the way typical roseola presents, but we're going to push aside Kawasaki because her tongue isn't swollen enough. Right. And this is a problem, but you know, we can talk about that after for sure. Yeah. So anyway, I'll fast forward just as the same as you with Isaiah. Things kept happening and I continuously said to people... I know there's something else. Like this is not this typical childhood virus. And then they started sort of pushing me towards scarlet fever. Mm -hmm. I understand there's a lot of similarities. Um, it finally got to a point where I would, I just remember sitting in the middle of my bed and I was just crying. Cause I mean, you Google this, like you, as you did. If anybody out there is Googling Kawasaki disease right now, please stop because it's you. the stuff you read online just makes you think like, oh, great, I'm going to have a three-year-old with heart disease and you know she's never going to recover from this. Right. Um, it is very rare. I guess I can understand why doctors maybe don't know enough about it or maybe don't want to think that as the first option. Um, and major complications such as the ones Karen's already mentioned that Isaiah has are also very rare, but obviously not impossible. So we ended up taking her back in for now the third time and we saw my family doctor. And I didn't mention Kawasaki because I just wanted to see what she would say. I told her about all the different symptoms. By this point, it had now been probably going on two weeks since symptoms appeared and all of the skin on her middle finger on her right hand was peeling off like an onion. And that was when I was like, okay, like what else can this be? Yeah. And um, the doctor said to me, you know, uh, I tend to agree with the original doctor you saw that this is probably, you know, a typical childhood virus, maybe scarlet fever. She said there is one other option, but it's super rare. And that's when she mentioned Kawasaki disease. And I said, okay, I've, I've already done a lot of research. By this point, I'd actually already reached out to you before right. I saw this doctor. And, um, you know, you had kind of given me the guidelines of what I should be asking mm -hmm. for. And so I pushed for a pediatric assessment. And the soonest they could get me in at that point, I think was three days away. I called back the next day and I said, I want to see someone today. And they shuffled some stuff around. They got me in that day to see the cardiologist. And the cardiologist said, I can't believe nobody thought this was an option based on everything that you've yeah. told them. And she had actually seen a lot of cases of Kawasaki and she was on my side. She said, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty certain that's, that's what's going on. Unfortunately, we were out of the period that treatment was even an option, right? Because I think you've got 10 days. 10 days is the optimal, but if a child continues to have a fever past the 10 days, they will treat them. She no longer had a fever. So they, it's because it's actually what they call an acute illness. It doesn't persist. It will self, it will resolve in right. some cases it will resolve itself. Um, and that's when they don't treat it. But in some yeah. cases they, 
they will continue to have the fever until you treat it. Yeah, we so. were, I guess, one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Um, she did, by the time we saw the cardiologist, she was getting better, still very irritable. Uh, the irritability, like that lasted a while. Oh, it, yeah. She was just not herself <laughs> yes. for, for weeks. I was like, is this like is this permanent? Is she going to be this kid now? Just She's usually a very calm energy, very easygoing. Everything was setting her off at this point. Everything was pissing her off. Everything it's, was making yeah. her throw fits and screaming and crying and so tired. She could fall asleep at any point during the day. That's very common. It's funny because I hear a lot of people say that. And I think because Kawasaki disease is still, there's so much they don't know. Mm-hmm. There could be, I mean, you know, it's inflammation in your whole body. So inflammation in the brain, who knows, right? right. What is going on? And that's why it takes a while to to normalize. Okay. So, because I've heard that from many parents. And and that was the thing that kept bringing me back to the doctors. I'm like, I know my kid and this isn't her. Right. Like this is, she doesn't act like this. Well, anyway, to wrap up my story, uh, we went to the cardiologist. Uh, her echocardiogram was normal. And uh, she felt pretty confident that, as you said, this was one of the cases that kind of resolved itself. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we still had to do a uh, follow-up. I believe it was four to six weeks after. Yes. And then, so we did that, also normal. Perfect. And we've got one last follow-up coming up in the spring. And I, I think that's the last one. I actually don't know. It's, yeah. Well, normally, um, if they're all clear, the current guidelines state that if all of the echoes are clear... Um, that you're completely discharged at that point mm-hmm. and that she doesn't need to be followed up by a cardiologist. Um, but and that's based on the American Heart Association guidelines. And that's what Canada follows because we actually don't have our own. Okay. Um, but obviously some parents are not as comfortable with that and will push to still have their child seen um, you know, every five years or, but that's a personal choice. According to the guidelines, that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it would also depend on what your um, physician will agree to. Right. Because we are in Canada and have universal health care, um, there's not as much of a case for it in the documentation, mm-hmm. but obviously your doctor can still order it if they feel it's necessary. If they feel. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's go back. So now you've, as you said, now Isaiah has been definitely confirmed that he has Kawasaki disease. And now you've had the follow-up and this is where you're at, him on blood thinners. And then how did you learn everything about this disease? How did you get involved with everything? Or actually, maybe we should tell everybody exactly what What this is. is. Yeah. (laughs) So Kawasaki disease is mostly a childhood illness. Um, It affects mostly children five and under. But um, that being said, it can affect children of all ages. So there's teenagers that have had Kawasaki disease. Um, and what it is is, a well, the interesting thing is with Kawasaki disease, they actually don't know what causes it. Mm-hmm. They don't know. Um, there's many different theories and they're all being researched right now, um, but they don't know exactly what the trigger is. The feeling, the current, most of the theories revolve around the fact that there's a trigger mm-hmm. and that your body then, um, most people genetic, there's people that are genetically more prone to Kawasaki disease and there's a trigger that then triggers your immune system to react mm-hmm. in this way. But what they do know is that it causes inflammation um, in your body. And, you know, the most um, noticeable one is the coronary aneurysms, where they're the ones that have the longer lasting effects. Um, but it can cause inflammation in your organs as well. Like as children are going through it, they may have inflammation um, throughout their body. And so the main symptoms, there's five main clinical symptoms that doctors will look for. So um, first of all, there's fever, but in conjunction with that, they're going to, so fever for at least five days, but in conjunction with that, they're going to look for the strawberry tongue, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and cracked red, cracked lips. Oh, I forgot. She had horribly cracked yeah. red, dry lips, like skin just peeling off of her lips. Yeah, yeah. So that's one. And then the second one is the swollen lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third is the rash. Um, the fourth is the, um, swollen hands and feet and the redness of, uh, and, and also red palms and soles of feet. She did have that actually, but that like, uh, Isaiah's rash that came and went, she had red swollen palms and feet, but 
it that wasn't there for very right. long. Right. Yeah. So that's another important point. Let me just list the last one and I'll go back to that. Um, and the last would be um, the red bloodshot eyes. Yeah. So, but when you're looking for it, it's not going to be oozing or pussing. It's just, they're, they're just liter- yeah, red. Yeah, they're literally just red. Just red. Yeah. So clinically, those are the things that doctors will look for. Um, and so a typical Kawasaki disease is uh, you're looking for four or more of those symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but the important thing, two important things. One is what you mentioned is that when you're going to the doctor, when doctors are looking for this, they need to keep in mind that not all these symptoms are going to be there at the same time. Right. Um, so if the doctor is just looking at your child, they may only have one symptom or two, fever and a rash, let's say. So it's important that you keep track of other things that have been happening mm-hmm. because they will all be part of the story. And then the other part of that is that there's also something called atypical Kawasaki disease. So children that don't have the four or more symptoms, um, that maybe only, because in Isaiah's case, he had the rash, he had the swollen lymph nodes, and he had the fever. I didn't notice, he didn't have the strawberry tongue or the lips. Um, he didn't, the hands and feet, maybe they were swollen. In the ER, they were poking and prying and really like debating are his feet swollen or not well he didn't want to walk so it's possible that they were hurting well the other thing is that's not one of the clinical symptoms but joint pain is another symptom that a lot of kids that have Kawasaki disease um, experience that you say that she would constantly complain about her knees hurting well that's and that's why Isaiah didn't want to walk his joints were in so much pain but we didn't know that they don't use that they can use that to diagnose it's not one of the key symptoms that Mm -hmm. they use to make the diagnosis. Right, because joint pain can be right. the flu, as But you said. it is other things that they can use to build their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but in atypical Kawasaki disease is actually very common in infants. Um, so they are at higher risk and also teens. So those two groups specifically are at higher risk when it comes to a misdiagnosis because doctors often don't look for it in younger babies. In babies that are young, sometimes the only symptom they're going to have is irritability and fever. They may not even have... Which just sounds like a baby. Exactly. (laughs) So the way that doctors diagnose it, typically with Kawasaki disease, they look for the clinical symptoms and then they do what we call differential diagnosis. So what your doctor is trying to do. Look at all the other things it could be and rule those out before you go to Kawasaki disease. Mm -hmm. But the other part that they can do and they should do if they can't find diagnosis is a blood test. And that's what we didn't get. Exactly. That's the part that every time that I talk about this just still bothers me. I mean, I need to let it go. It's been over over a year, but I don't understand why a blood test wasn't ordered. With all, she had five out of five, not all together, but she had five right. out of five. So the blood test, although not definitive, there are levels they can look for. There's certain markers that the doctors can look for that will point to Kawasaki disease or not. Um, and then the other part of it is when they do suspect, then they do the echo, the echocardiogram. Mm-hmm. Once you get a positive echocardiogram for the swollen. Um, arteries, they can make the diagnosis in absence of the the blood test. That is more of a tell-all um, symptom. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's usually what the, the courses doctors will take. If they see enough clinical symptoms, then they do the echo, and if they're positive, then they're going straight to treatment. I mean, right. they can do the blood work to just reinforce that, but... Um, in that, the echo is, is the one that will show you for certain what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the treatment for Kawasaki disease, like I said, is IVIG. Uh, they don't actually know the mechanism why why it actually works. They know it helps to bring the inflammation, but in the body they haven't actually figured it out. That's research that they're doing. They just it was right. a treatment someone tried and it worked, and it's become kind of the standard. So yeah. it's IVIG, which is as the name implies, um, administered through an IV, as well as high dose aspirin, which. People are at home probably going, aspirin? You never give a child aspirin when they have a fever. And this is one of the very rare cases where they actually use aspirin um, to bring down the inflammation. But I mean, they're being they're in the hospital being administered this high-dose aspirin, so it's not an issue. Um, so those are the main treatments. And if children like Isaiah are resistant, they then try another dose of IVIG or they can go to steroids or there's a couple mm-hmm. other things that they're still... Um, working on that you can, other courses of action that um, clinicians can take to treat children. Uh, So that's a typical treatment. And the 10-day window, which we mentioned earlier, is typically what they've found to be the most effective time. If children Mm -hmm. are treated within 10 days of the onset of the fever, 
their chance of uh, developing a coronary aneurysm goes down from 25% to 5%. So That's significant. It is. So, because we're talking about, a, I mean, it's a lifelong change, right? Um, so, it's, it's really important to to receive treatment within the 10-day window. And mm-hmm. that's why awareness is so important. Why do you think doctors know so little about this? Or, you know, maybe I'm not even phrasing that right. It's not even they know so little, or maybe they don't. Um, why is it so hard to get a diagnosis? Well, it shouldn't be. I mean, the fact that you you feel that way, and a lot of parents feel that way, is really sad. Because if you talk to any doctor, I don't know if you've ever gone back and talked to those doctors that um, originally looked at your daughter, they've all learned about this in medical school. It's well, yeah, he knew, The minute I said it, he knew exactly that, what I exactly. was talking about, even to the point where he said, no, that's not a strawberry tongue. Well, this is, <laughs> and see, I think this is the problem. So the doctors all have been educated about it, but it's not top of mind for them. And as you said, they think of it as, as rare. So mm-hmm. they're, they don't, some of them may have never seen a case in their lifetime, even though right. they've been practicing for many years, right? Because, well, I mean, right now it's estimated that it's, um, actually, let me just check my notes before I miss. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you close know how to, rare. <laughs> close to current numbers, 30 per 100,000 children under the age of five in Canada. In other parts of the world, it's different. In Japan, it's much higher. Right. That was one thing when I was doing my own research. Um, I did read that it it is predominantly in Asian children, which my kids are half. Right. Um, how how true is that? Well, that's it is true. There's a higher incident rate in Asian children of Asian descent and mm-hmm. um, children and boys and boys. Okay. But see, this actually plays into what you were just talking about: why a lot of children are misdiagnosed. Because I think doctors, if they've learned by med school but haven't really read a lot about it, they read those type of things and just oh not Asian, not a boy, probably not. Right. But it doesn't, the numbers I think are not perfect. First of all, they're probably still changing, but also it doesn't mean that you can't have it if you aren't Asian. Right. Of course. I mean, right. It it says it's predominantly Asian, but as you said, they, they actually don't have any idea what causes it. So. Right. They don't, I mean, they know there's a genetic factor and Mm -hmm. perhaps that's why, um, you know, it's if it's genetics, then maybe certain um, racial groups have different genetics than right. others, but they don't really know. But I think for doctors, they just need. I think a lot of them need a reminder and need to understand more about it than what they, the you know, however, like the one page they read in med school, because they mm-hmm. need to understand. I mean, the things about atypical Kawasaki disease is another thing. I think a lot of them, from the stories I've heard, again, this is all anecdotal. I'm right. basing this on, but my feeling is from stories I've heard is that, you know, a lot of them just think, oh, you have to have check off all the boxes. Mm-hmm. If you don't have all four or five, it's not it. They don't, they forget about atypical Kawasaki disease. They, f- they don't know maybe the latest research that, you know, that shows that infants are often misdiagnosed and that they don't need all the symptoms, right? So I think a lot of it is kind of re-educating some of the clinicians, the frontline workers, and also maybe just reminding them that, yeah. hey, this is a thing and that you need to be on lookout. But, you know, your point of it being rare, it is it really rare? I guess it, the numbers say it is, but I wonder how many other cases have been aren't accounted for. I think there's probably a lot that are misdiagnosed, especially because, as you said, it is considered an acute illness where it most of the time self-resolves and a lot of people maybe don't ever know that they had that. It was like, oh, you know, my kid had a really bad virus and now he's fine. Right. And I think, I mean, in our case, that that that's really what happened. I was the one pushing because I was, I didn't, I wasn't okay with saying, okay, she has some sort of virus. It didn't make sense to me. There was too many things going on, too many symptoms. And when her skin started peeling off, which again, I wanted you to sort of maybe talk about the different phases when her skin, like it, I wish I could explain to people listening what it was like. It was like, it wasn't even skin. It was like paper or like, like it was like peeling off the skin of, of, I don't know, some type of produce, like an onion. It was just coming off in long strips and it wasn't hurting her. I was just peeling it off. And it was, that was crazy. I did. I, to me, I just felt like there's, there's no other explanation for this. Why is her skin suddenly peeling off as she's seemingly getting better? Right. right? Well, this is, yeah. So that's something that comes later. 
um, I, I didn't mention that, but that's later on. Um, so if normally that's when all the other symptoms have resolved, mm-hmm. that's when you get the peeling, but it is a bit of a tell. So the unfortunate thing is that it's a tell too late because it's after the period of when most kids would have needed treatment. Right. It's, it's beyond the, there's what, there's three phases, right? Is yeah. It acute. Um, I'm trying to think the other one, uh, it's like most diseases, right? They have an acute phase, acute, subacute, subacute, yeah. yeah. So, but that doesn't happen till till later. So, but in Isaiah's case, it's actually interesting because because he didn't respond to the first IVIG, and then um, the second, his fever also came back, and they started steroids. It was a bit of back and forth, and at one point, they were questioning their diagnosis. They then thought he maybe had um, juvenile arthritis. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was... So, we well, were... inflammatory, joint pain. Exactly. Okay. There is a relation there yeah. uh, between Kawasaki's and juvenile arthritis, but it's... Um, they're still doing research on that, but they there are connections there. Um, but once they saw the skin start peeling... They knew. They knew. They were like, yeah. okay, we made the right diagnosis. Um, because he was in the hospital long enough that that actually happened before we mm-hmm. left. But so it is, uh, it is something that can, um, confirm usually that it was. Yeah. It, fact, I mean, it confirmed it for me before even seeing the doctor. I said, there's no, I'm not leaving until somebody tells me that I'm not wrong about this. Right. Like I said, at that point, I had already reached out to you and I told you all of the symptoms and your response was enough for me. You said, it, you know, you don't have to have them all. There is a typical Kawasaki. You gave me the breakdown. I said, yeah, she, she checks these boxes. I feel pretty confident this is what's going on. Um, Going back to the misdiagnosis or, you know, doctors being educated, do you think that doctors are afraid, for lack of a better term, to make a diagnosis like Kawasaki being that it's rare or, you know, do you think that they, as you said, you want to do the differential diagnosis and rule things out. Do you think there's sometimes a fear of like, you know, other people in the medical community judging them for diagnosing something so rare and they, you know, they don't want to be looked at as, you know, making that kind of misdiagnosis? (laughs) I mean, it's hard for me to make a kind of statement about that because I haven't really, again, these are stories I hear from other people. I haven't met these doctors to know that. Um, I don't think so, though. I really think that in in their heart of hearts, they often really just believe it's that rare and don't Mm -hmm. think it's... Because to your point, there's so many other childhood illnesses that yeah. look like this. And I think that's another main reason why children are misdiagnosed. It's not because the doctor, you know, doesn't want to do due diligence all the time. So maybe sometime, <laughs> right? But it's also that it, it looks like so many other things. Yeah. I was actually satisfied at least the first day with the roseola diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what the rash on her on her torso look like it looked like roseola right but obviously was not yeah because that's another thing too like rashes they can all look different so to yeah. the untrained eye not the doctor untrained but maybe they just haven't seen it it mm-hmm. looks like something else and that's what i said i think it's it's just a matter of um and that's part of what we do at kawasaki's canada what we're working on is trying to figure out a strategy to just remind some of these frontline workers it's not just doctors it's the er nurses it's right you know it's um nurse practitioners it's you know anyone else that can help um aid a diagnosis that you just want to remind them that this is what it looks like and here are some things some pitfalls diagnosis pitfalls that you should be aware of Mm -hmm. that you maybe don't remember from when you studied it the first time so i think um that's an important part of of um what we do. Mm-hmm. But the other part is it's also on us as parents. And I think, and that's why we try to raise awareness because if your doctor, for whatever reason, doesn't think of it, if you know the symptoms and can bring it into the conversation the way that you did, mm-hmm. then that is that will be so helpful because even if they're like, mm, no, at least you've got them thinking about it. And if you need to go back again, bring it up again. Yeah. Right? Because they... For them, it may not be top of mind, but if you can get them thinking about it, maybe they will go and do that extra bit of research and go look at the latest guidelines and, you know, look into it a little bit more and take you more seriously. 
So that's, I think, yeah, I think a lot of parents um, are, through no fault of their own, are very quick to, of course, trust what their doctor says. That's We all do that, right? Um, but if you really know, like you did, like I did, when you're the child's parent, you really know, no, something else is wrong. This is not my child. This behavior isn't normal. None of this is normal. Then, yeah, sometimes it is on the parents. And I guess, to your point, as a practitioner, I can appreciate that sometimes you miss things. I mean, I, I've been out of massage school since 2010. So sure, there's probably things that I learned about in a textbook I've never seen in practice and I might not initially think of when I'm assessing somebody. So I can, I can appreciate that. Um, the mom in me, of course, was just angry. <laughs> the The mom was like, why didn't you think of this? Why, why are you ignoring this? And, you know, why did I have to come back three, four times? Why did I have to push for an assessment? But it is, you know, probably just exactly what you said. There's just not enough awareness about it, enough education, enough reminders that this exists and it's not actually as rare as we think it is. I mean, even the numbers you gave, what did you say, 30 and 100,000? Children under five, yeah. That's not that rare. I mean, in estimates based on the current population, I think we are estimating about 200 kids in Canada will get that per year. Mm -hmm. But I mean, which again, sounds low, I guess, compared to some other childhood um, diseases. But when it's your child, it it doesn't really matter how rare it is, right? Well, right. It's, I mean, even when something is one in a million, like, okay, well, I don't want to be that one. Absolutely. So it it has to be, it has to be taken seriously. And like I said, the practitioner can appreciate, I don't think the doctors were, you know, intentionally not doing their due, due diligence. The mother was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> I was just angry for weeks, but you helped you, oh, well, I'm glad you helped a lot. Just even having somebody who could say like, I'm not crazy. That was helpful. So at least when I would go back to the doctor and actually Karen gave me um, sort of the right questions that I should be asking and the tests that I should be sort of demanding. And when I came with all of that information, I literally only had to wait a day and they got me into the pediatric assessment. They did the assessment. We saw the cardiologist and just having do it, having done all of that and getting that done quickly just calmed my nerves a little bit. I was a little less angry after you telling me what to do. <laughs> That's great. Well, for sure. I mean, knowledge is power for sure. And um, sometimes we need to to do that in order to I mean, you're your best advocate for yourself and for your child when it comes to healthcare. Mm -hmm. I mean, the doctors can only do so much, but you need to make sure that all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed because they just don't have the, the bandwidth sometimes, right? The, yeah. the time to spend with each patient. So. Yeah. Well, and as you said, universal healthcare, blessing and a curse. Right. I mean, it's, we know that there's not enough resources. We know there's, you know, you can go into an ER and wait for, I don't know, up to eight hours if you don't seem like it's a life or death situation. So you really have to yeah, do your own research and be an advocate for yourself for anything, not right. just a super rare disease. I mean, I, the number of times that I've been to the doctor and by the time I get seen, my symptoms are gone. So it's like, okay, well, you're fine. Go home. <laughs> so we're just going to ignore that I was in, you know, horrible, like keeling over type of pain six hours ago, but then sitting in this ER, it's gone away. We're just going to ignore yeah. that. You have no symptoms now. Go home. Take some Tylenol. You're fine. <laughs> Go to bed. Um, so let's talk about what you do then. So I guess after getting this diagnosis with Isaiah, um, you obviously wanted to sort of put yourself front and center and get involved. Right. Well, originally I just started a blog because I wanted, it was really put together so that I could communicate with family and friends. Because obviously when Isaiah was hospitalized, we had, you know, inundated, um, I mean, we were happy to be inundated with, you know, calls, text messages and um, posts online. And I thought the best way to get everyone to have the information, not everybody's on Facebook or on social media. So let's start a blog and I can just post stuff there to keep people up to date on what's going on right. with him. Um but then it actually ended up growing to be people outside of my social circle. And so I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity to raise awareness. So I, I, mm -hmm. I have a blog right now where I've, you know, I share a lot of 
what Isaiah's gone through, um, what I go through, and what other parents, what I think will help other parents that are going through the same things. Um, so started that way. And then the other thing I didn't mention, which is part of our journey, which I think is important, is that when Isaiah turned four, he actually ended up having a double bypass surgery as a result of his aneurysms. So he is... Um, he had a clot in one artery and then the other one was narrowing. So they felt that they had to do the bypass. Otherwise he'd only have one good coronary artery left to supply mm-hmm. blood to his heart. So we, we did that. Um, that was done. And when he turned four, so that was a huge, that was the longest day of my life. Honestly, it was, I can't even imagine. Yeah. It's yeah. It was long. It was a long 10 hours. He was in the operating room for 10 hours and on the bypass machine. It is, it was very scary and um, they didn't even, they weren't able to do the full, they only could do the single bypass, not the double, um, just because the arteries were so damaged from having Kawasaki disease. Right. They just couldn't get the other uh, graft to stay. So it wasn't a complete success. So we were a bit devastated right after, but um, he's been great since then. Since that was 2014, no, 2013. And he's been stable ever since. So even though he had the one graph, it was fine. Um, but shortly, I'm trying to remember, was that year? 24? Yes, it was that year. I had uh, connected with another mom that I met on social media, who unfortunately her story is actually, um, although ours was difficult, hers is, uh, is a lot more difficult because her son actually passed away as a result of Kawasaki disease, he was an undiagnosed case. So she doesn't even recall when he had Kawasaki disease. But when he turned six, one day he told his dad he didn't feel well. And then um, he he fell down and he, he was on the ground and they, re- and they called the paramedics and he had a heart attack in their family home. A six-year-old having a heart attack. Yeah. And um, it wasn't until they did the autopsy um, later that they made the diagnosis that he must have had Kawasaki disease because he had died of a heart attack due to the coronary aneurysms. So that was the first time she had ever heard about this. Um, that was the first time she'd ever heard about Kawasaki she, disease. Yeah, she didn't know her son even had it. It wasn't until the autopsy report came back and then she learned about it. And then, wow. so eventually, I mean, over a few years, she she knew she wanted to do something, but it was very fresh. So eventually she said, okay, no, now is the time. And we just, she tweeted something and I happened to see it and I messaged her and then we connected and she'd already had some other people that she wanted to, that wanted to help her start um, this charity, Kawasaki Canada. So um, uh, we, we first we were a um, not-for-profit and then we got a charitable status and now it's, we have our board directors and we have our different committees. So it's grown from there, but that was actually how it how I became involved. Um, So I already had my social media just myself. And then I happened to, as fate would have it, um, meet Elizabeth. Her name is Elizabeth um, Heald, um, just through Twitter, coincidentally, one day. It was Kawasaki's Awareness Day, which is January the 26th. And we both, she had tweeted something. So that's how we connected and how um, I became involved with Kawasaki's Canada. Okay. Well, I mean, sort of like one of the founders. Yes. Yes. I was there from the, I mean, she's there from the beginning. Yeah, I was there from the beginning. I mean, Elizabeth is definitely, I always say, um, the driving force behind our organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was there right from the start. So yeah, one of the founding members. And you are now the head of the support committee. That's right. So what what does the support committee do for families? Well, what we try to do is provide any support for families that have are going through Kawasaki disease, that have gone through it, that think their child may have it but aren't sure. Um, most of the, the support we've done has been online. I mean, we live in this digital age where people are more comfortable often mm-hmm. by email. So most of it's that um, by email um, or occasionally I've ca- spoken to people on the phone. Um, so it is a one-on-one support where uh, either myself or someone else on our committee will actually um, correspond with families directly. But we also have an online group uh, on our Facebook, a Facebook group for Kawasaki's Canada for parents that want more of an open forum and get input from various other families. But that's the main uh, program right now. There are things that we want to do moving forward, um, looking at supporting teens that have gone through this. But that's still in development. Well, I mean, social media is how I found you, sort of. Um, It was 
well, I mean, it, it was social media. It's because of your blog and because of all the things you were posting. When we were dealing with this and I was losing my mind because I was convinced, you know, once that tongue turned red, I was convinced that it was Kawasaki disease and I kept reading about it and reading about it. And as we talked about in the beginning, reading about it was only freaking me out more because although rare, you read about all these things that can happen. And as you said, Elizabeth's case was very difficult, very rare, but it's it's not impossible. So I was losing my mind and all of a sudden Mark said, wait a second, what did you say? Kawasaki disease. He said, I know somebody who has a child with Kawasaki disease and uh, she's she's on some sort of committee. Like he'd remembered reading your blogs and seeing your posts and he's like, let me get you her contact. And and I messaged you through Facebook in a desperate plea of like, tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, social media is exactly how I found you. And I think it's awesome that you guys are doing that because as you said, we live in this digital age and this is such a great way that you can get all of this information to everyone, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is you're using, people are going to see it. That's right. I mean, that's, there's three main things that we work on, that we're working on. Um, So one is awareness and education. So the awareness piece is getting awareness out in the general public. So through social media, but, you know, through other means, we have actual, you know, offline media, like posters Mm -hmm. that people can get to put up in daycares or doctor's offices, which we'd be happy to send you if you're interested. Um, But then the education piece is the education or re-education, as it were, of um, people in the medical community. Um, But, you know, it doesn't have to be doctors, it could be pharmacists, it could be because, you know, pharmacists even, you know, they get a lot of questions, oh, my kid has Mm -hmm. a fever. So it's anyone that would in the medical field that could help to get a, a get parents to have a diagnosis earlier for their child. Um, and then, so support was I already spoke about and then research is the last thing that we right. do. So we um, are looking to raise funds to help uh, research either in the, the cause of the disease, which is a big question mark, but also in treatment um, and also, you know, the effects, psychosocial effects, because there's, you know, studies that have been done on that. How is this affecting children um, as they grow older, dealing right. with the things that they're dealing with, like Isaiah? Um, mm. I mean, his life is completely changed from what it was before this diagnosis, Definitely. right? So that's another thing that we, uh, that that's our three main focus. Okay. And how is Isaiah now? What's he up to? What's he doing? He's great. Like, I mean, it's People always say, oh, you know, poor Isaiah. But, you know, Isaiah, we have always um, tried to empower him. Mm-hmm. We don't like to use words like can't, don't. So because of the blood thinners, unfortunately, there are things he can't do. Like he's not allowed to do downhill skiing. He's right. not allowed to play things like football or hockey because anything with a high chance of internal or a head injury. Right, no contact sports. Yeah, because yeah. the blood thinners, right? It's, it's, it could be fatal in his mm-hmm. case. I mean, head injury is obviously serious in any child or any person's case, but for him, it's, it's, it's even more serious because the bleeding will be profuse and it won't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of those things, he can't do those things. We just steer him to other things. So, you know, he loves tennis, he plays golf, he can see like swimming. So we try to make his life as normal as possible mm-hmm. without, um, you know, thinking about or talking about his heart condition. He obviously knows that his right. heart is special and he goes for visits at the hospital every three months and he has to get blood levels done once a month for the blood thinner that he gets. Um, so he knows he's not exactly like the other kids, but you wouldn't tell. He 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 is the kid, the fun-loving kid. He embraces life. He's the most competitive. If, if you're running, he wants to run the fastest, right? If you're playing basketball, he wants to score the, <laughs> the most hoops, right? So he's uh, he doesn't let it slow him down. So to him, this is normal, though. He yeah he doesn't think about the. You I mean he gets injections twice a day. He takes all these medications um, in the morning and in the evening. But to him, that's his life. He doesn't remember life before this. So this is no, of course he was so he was so young. Um, You know, there's there's something that I I read a while back that said, you know, when people ask me how I do it, my response is I wasn't given a choice, and that can sound negative, but it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I have a sister who has uh, a genetic condition, uh, neurofibromatosis. In most cases, it's it's very benign. You know, basically, you get some spots on your skin. They're called cafe au lait spots. Um, and tumors can grow. Uh, typically, like, they're not... Um, they're not a big deal. Um, my dad has this condition. He had a tumor on his knee, day surgery, cut it off. He's fine. He had one on his back, same thing. Um, unfortunately, in my sister's case, the tumor is on her optic nerve, pushing on parts of her brain, and it is inoperable. Um, she's had multiple surgeries to try to remove pieces. Um, if I went into her whole medical history, it's crazy. I mean, she's had nine brain surgeries. She has a shunt that drains uh, cerebral spinal fluid that goes through her entire body. Um, she's now developed a seizure disorder, probably from all the trauma to her brain mm-hmm. with, you know, all of the surgeries. And sure, I'm sure there's some days where she's like, why me? Because, yeah, she has to go for monthly blood tests. She's got to go for MRIs every six months. You know, there's a lot of stuff that she yeah. has to do. And this started for her when she was... I want to say in grade six, if she hears this, she might correct me, but I want to say around, you know, grade five, grade six, she was young when the tumor's been there her entire life, but when it started causing problems right. for her. And uh, she's also like just very positive about the whole thing, you know, like this is her normal and this is what she does. And she doesn't typically try to say like, I can't do that or whatever. You know, she just, she just lives as, you know, an average 30 something would live, except She's got to do a few different things. She's got to take medication three to four times a day. And yeah, she's the same, you know, with the, uh, she has alarms on her phone that tell her the yes. exact time to take the pills. And, <laughs> but it's, it's just her normal. Or, you know, we've, we had a guy on the podcast uh, recently who, you know, had to have a portion of his brain removed as a, a seizure treatment. And again, it's, you know, these, he's been told can't a lot of times in his life and his attitude and my sister's attitude and it sounds like Isaiah's attitude is well just watch me exactly. you know I, with my sister also she can't play contact sports doesn't mean she can't do anything just yet you of know course. she's not going to be a football player and I'm sure her you know five all five feet of her is totally okay <laughs> with that <laughs> so yeah I think there's it's it's good that you guys are looking to just empower him because it. It doesn't have to be a life sentence for him. No, no, absolutely not. No, he 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 does pretty much everything that a normal ten year old would do. Right. I mean, there's exceptions. He doesn't play hockey, but he wasn't interested in hockey anyway. So you it's know, adorable that he golfs. By the <laughs> way, <laughs> I love that. I could just pick a little ten year old golfing. Oh gosh, oh, yeah, so I'm cute. terrible. They always laugh at me, but it's fine. <laughs> He's way more coordinated than I am. Living his best life. He that's is. Awesome. And that's that's like his motto. He lives every day to the fullest. He embraces everything. And that's just him, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm glad he uh that he can cope with it. He doesn't really think about it and I don't want him to. So yeah. yeah. Well, um, is there anything that you think, um, before we get into, you know, how people can get in touch with you or donate to the foundation if they want, anything that you think people should know or anything that we've left out that you think people should be educated about when it comes to Kawasaki disease? I think the most important takeaway is, I mean, we talked about the symptoms and you can go online and look at them um, later, but I think it's, it's just knowing. It's knowing the symptoms and trusting your gut. Like we said, like no, your your parental um, sixth sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you know the symptoms, then at least you know you can bring them into the conversation. Or if you know your child is not acting the way they normally do, and you know something's off, and I think this would apply to not just Kawasaki disease, but Anything. any medical um, situation, because you know your child better than anyone else, and you have to advocate for them. Yeah. Don't fear being the crazy mom. Right. I mean, within reason, <laughs> right? Because there are things, I mean, there's going to be cases where it's not Kawasaki's. Of course right. there are, right? right? It's not like every rash and every fever is going to be Kawasaki's. No. And that's not the point. The point is um, at least be aware, bring this conversation and know that in, if, if it happens to be, God forbid it is, at least you're on top of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that that's, in my mind, one of the most important takeaways and things like that make me uneasy that I think is also worth addressing is when you talked about, well, the tongue is not 
what did you see? Red enough or swollen? It, it wasn't swollen enough. Swollen enough. We have to be careful with things like that because I think doctors, I don't know if some doctor, I guess clearly yours, is looking for them to be a certain degree and again, check those boxes off. But there's going to be varying degrees. Not every child is going to be as litless as Isaiah was, right? Mm-hmm. Some kids have calcitoxies and have still have some of their energy. Right. So, so I think that's the thing, that there are degrees of these symptoms. With anything. Right. I had shingles when I was 25, and anyone who, out there who's had shingles will probably hate me for this, but it wasn't painful. Like, I had the rash. I had the blistering rash. Um, I did get some lasting nerve pain, but the the rash itself, when it was there, I remember my father having shingles and him crying. I had never in my entire life seen my dad cry, and except when he had shingles. And so I thought it was going to be horribly painful. Sure, there was some pain. Really not. Anything, there's going to be varying Very, degrees. Right. Yeah. So I agree with you. I think that's a really important takeaway that it doesn't have to look like the textbook. Exactly. Yeah. All right. If people want to get in touch with you, read your blog, share your blog, learn more about uh, Kawasaki Disease Canada, what do they do? Okay. So for Kawasaki Disease Canada, we can visit us online at katiecanada.org. Um, and we have all the symptoms listed right on the, f- the first page. So it's, and it, they've got visuals as well. Um, so that's a quick way to just learn the symptoms and have an idea of what they may look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have a link there for uh, more information on what we do, as well as a link to donate if you're interested. And for my blog, it's um, Isaiah's Katie Journey dot blogspot. I have a link to that, and uh, you're, it, can I post that? Absolutely, post yeah. It's a, I'll post links to everything, okay. but I, I do want to post the blog because I think your personal story might be relatable to some people. For sure, please share. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Any other? links you wanted to share before we go? No, I think <laughs> no. everything else is linked to there. I mean, obviously we have Facebook pages for um, both my blog and for uh, Katie Canada, but you will, they're linked from both the website and um, my blog. So you'll find us. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming in and hanging out here today. And uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. So thanks, thanks for Karen. having me. I mean, we always love to raise awareness. So I really appreciate you Um, allowing me to be part of your podcast. Awesome. This has been very educational. Thank you. So everybody, we'll wrap it up there. You've been listening to Two Massage Therapists and a Microphone. My name is Amanda, sitting down with Karen Lynn, and we will talk to you later.